Welcome to The Last Negroes at Harvard, podcast number seven. There were 18 of us. We are now pushing 80. We were in the Harvard College class of 1963. I'm Kent Garrett. In this episode, we talk politics with longtime former news anchor Larry Sperano. Larry says he's a liberal Democrat, but he sounds like a trumpet to us. With me are classmates Fred Easter, Jerry Secunde, John Woodford, and George Jones. Fred, how are you and what are you, how was your week and what's going on? I had a terrific week here in Prior Lake, Minnesota. Um, and the week coming up is even better. It's going to be in the high 80s and <laughs> sunny, so I'll get to work on my tan. <laughs> on your tan. All right. How about Jerry? How are you? Uh, the week has not been quite as good. We've been at 109 and 107, and Ooh. we've got fires uh, surrounding us. But I'm in Pasadena, California, outside of L.A., but it's not nearly as bad as it is up north in the San Francisco Bay Area. They have a real problem. Over 300,000 acres have burned so far. George, how are you? I'm doing well, Kent. I'm in Atlanta still. And yeah, boy, that's trying to make sure backdrop. that wow. my ballot gets counted. Very nice. <laughs> right. Yeah. Last time you yeah. told us you were working on a science right. project. What's that? Last about? time you so told I, us you were working. Now that I no longer have a an active laboratory, I am confined to doing in silico projects. So I have been working on a project related to protein evolution and a process that's called horizontal gene transfer which is the, essentially the transfer of genetic material directly between organisms as opposed to via the root of inheritance. I have transferred some genes horizontally. <laughs> That's not what he means. How about, <laughs> That's quite pretty. How about you? How are you, uh, John? Well, I'm here in Auburn, Michigan. Uh, I guess uh, nothing, too much is going on here. The, the vectors of the virus are expected to come on campus and everyone is waiting around town in, in fear of uh, how much virus the kids will be bringing and where it's going to, who is going to get on. Well, our guest this, this session is Larry Sperano. <coughs> He's a uh, longtime anchor down at uh, Fox 40 News. He is a, uh, also an uh, investigative reporter. And he and I worked together for about seven years down in Binghamton. Uh, at Fox 40 back in the day, and he is uh, a guy I pretty much uh, disagree with about on everything, but uh, aside from that, he's a great guy. And uh, how are you, Larry? Where are you calling from, and what's the story? I'm calling from Scranton, or as the natives say, Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is uh, Biden's boyhood home. Well, let's let's start off with uh, where you guys think we are in terms of the election. Larry, why don't you start? Where, does, uh, where do you think Biden and... and uh, and Trump stand right now at this moment. You know, as we've said in our discussions uh, on WIOX, I think this one's hard to call. Now, as you remember, and as I remind you periodically, I called Trump's victory four years ago when you thought I was nuts. Uh -huh, and I said, uh -huh. I said at the time, if he gets the nomination, he's going to be the next president. I knew, I was certain then, this time, I don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, there's still a lot of things in play. Uh, a lot of pluses for, for uh, uh, Trump 
a lot of minuses for him as well, and vice versa with Biden. So I'm not sure uh, at all what's going to be the final outcome. And I think a lot's going to depend now on the debates, if there is a debate, and uh, you know how people see who's really to blame for the spread of uh, the coronavirus. So th these are kind of like uh, unknown elements at this point. Right. How do you feel, Fred? I believe, God, I hope Biden wins. I don't believe the de democracy can withstand another four years of Donald Trump. Um, I don't believe it can stand another four months of Donald Trump. Um, so I'm hoping I live until November 3rd so that I can vote against him. And I'm hoping that Ruth Bader Ginsburg lives past January 22nd so that he does not get to replace her as a lame duck president. Mm -hmm. I fear that Trump will find more and more ways to steal the election. I do not fear that he will simply refuse to leave the White House because we have Marines for that. <laughs> Jerry, how about you? Well, I think it's really gonna depend on a half a dozen swing states is what it amounts to. Uh, and I think things are gonna be a lot closer than some of us would hope. Right now, it certainly looks like Biden has a substantial lead in most of these swing states. Uh, but I think it will get closer and closer as we get to the election. One of the things, Larry, that really puzzles me uh, and I'm not talking about the evangelicals, but the, the white, non-educated, by non-college educated working class, uh, why they are so strong supporters of Trump. When I look at my family, uh, all my aunts, my uncles, my father, et cetera, none of them went to college except for my mother, uh, but they were, not, they were not ignorant, I will put it that way. They knew what was in their self-interest. And when I look at Trump, when I look at things like trying to do away with the Affordable Care Act or not pushing for a higher minimum wage. This works against their self-interest. Why are they such strong supporters? I think because they don't really see it that way. As I mentioned previously, uh, what they see is that they've been disenfranchised. Now, uh, although Kent doubts uh, the truth of what I say, I've been a lifelong liberal Democrat. But, you know, when I was a kid and during my parents' day, my both parents were factory workers. The Democrats were clearly aligned with the interests of the working class. That's what they were doing. That's the way it was perceived. So there was strong support in those days from the working class. With the outsourcing of jobs, which accelerated during the, it started with, um, with, with uh, Clinton when he signed NAFTA. Now that, that involved Canada and um, Mexico. But that opened the doors, which became floodgates as the years went along. And during the eight years of the Obama uh, administration with Joe Biden, I didn't hear them talking much about stopping that outflow of jobs from China. That's an overwhelming concern of them. The jobs, they also, they feel that uh, the political correctness has become so extreme that they're beginning to resent being called racist every time they turn around. And I, I think with this current campaign, Biden is pushing that a little too much and there's gonna be a, a, a reaction to that. So, you know, there, there's certainly some ra real racism involved there, but the working class just feels that it's been shoved aside and all the uh, support and attention is going to 
political identity groups and minorities. Again, rightly or wrongly, that is perception, and that is why they're strongly supporting Trump. How, about, how do you feel about that, George? Donald Trump supports the working class. Where, where is the evidence that anything he's done that that's the case? Here, here. Well, he's making a good uh, play for that. You know, he knows how to promote those ideas. Now, whether that's the reality is a separate um, is a separate issue. But what again, what I'm saying is, it's the perception out there, and there's no doubt. There's no doubt with hard evidence that the jobs have been allowed by both sides to be outsourced to China and other nations. And the industrial base of the U.S. has been gutted. And that's one of the core issues with the working class and to some extent the middle class as well. And the working class perceives Trump as a change agent. Again, rightly or wrongly, that's the perception. That, that they, have to, they have to drain the swamp. They have to clean up all the, all the people that failed them all those years. So they're hoping that Trump would, uh, would do that for them. That, that was Trump's pitch, and, and they absorbed it. Well, yeah, the, I think the nature of, a, you know, might say a reactionary populism is to, is to fool the uh, working class and make them think that you're for them when you're screwing them. And uh, I would say the Trump people are, have been very good at pulling that off. And they see that the Democrats are the Democratic uh, platform. This is like an issue on labor. Most of the working people are for a single payer when they poll them. But even the union representatives on the Democratic Central Committee wouldn't support single payer when it came to the uh, platform. So you have your union representatives of the Democrats playing this kind of politics and selling out what should be, talk about people not backing their own interests. Of course, their interest is not the same as the worker on the floor. I mean, these are uh, operators in the union and they're playing politics. But I think that kind of thing uh, renders the workers on the floor, they're gonna be vulnerable to other kinds of appeal. They don't see a champion out there among the Democrats who say they have been their champions, but they're just, it's just uh, chin music. Yeah the Democrats play. So these people are confused, they're, in, they're frightened, they're insecure, and Trump is going after them. And that's not, you know, and Trump, of course, I mean, the people behind Trump, uh, whoever these groups are, with the Mercer Foundation, these other people, they're playing, a, they're playing a game that's pretty complicated and deep as far as foreign policy and, you know, Judeo-Christian return to the way it was. They have all sorts of, they have a, a, a uh, you know, a game plan. And I just hope the Democrats, you see what the Democrats are coming up with. I can only hope that it's effective, but looking at their convention, I didn't find myself being all that uh, encouraged. Uh, there were a few good speeches, but nothing too solid to bank on at this point to me. L Larry, let me ask you, since, uh, Trump was elected to drain the swamp, to have chaos, to disrupt the current system. He's had three and a half years to do that. Does, do his supporters feel that he's succeeded in doing that? Are we very different than we were three and a half years ago? I think the perception is things have gotten somewhat better and they would have been much better if they were not um, uh, subjected to the uh, attacks uh, of the Democrats. Uh, they, they, they blame the Democrats 
for holding Trump back for everything that he, that he wants to do. Again, that, that is the perception. And um, you know, don't, don't forget, there, there's also this upheaval now of uh, the rioting. You know, it, the peaceful protest is one thing, but if you look at what's really been going on in these big cities, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's robbing, it's looting, it's arson, uh, people getting shot. And um, the, the, the Trump supporters watch Fox News, which shows this all the time. Of yeah. course, you know, they have their own axe to grind. But I think even though it's not being shown by CNN and the other mainstream net- networks very much, if not if at all, uh, among these cities, uh, in these areas of the country, that word locally is spreading about how crazy it's getting in the streets. And they blame the liberal Democrats that are in power as attorneys general, as mayors, uh, governors, and all that for standing down and allowing this to happen. So there's a growing backlash on that. Don't forget, Nixon got in on law and order coming out of the riots and the upheaval of the 60s and early 70s. And uh, at the time, you know, he said there, there's a silent majority. And I think that's at work here as well. Uh, I told Trump a number, I've told Ken a number of times that it's really difficult to read the polls, whether how accurate they are. Biden seems to be ahead, but then again, it's on the methodology of the polls. It depends on the sampling and all that. And, you know, so, uh, some of the polls show just a few points difference now where, where others have a wider spread. But again, I, I think a big element here now that may be a, a, a deciding factor with at least some of the population is how uh, Biden does in the debates. I mean, there's already the perception out there that he's uh, has the beginnings of dementia. And by voting for uh, Biden, you'd actually be voting for Kamala Harris. So there's that at work there. Now, if he does well in the debates, you know, that may erase that uh, perception. But I think, Larry, I think race is the big uh, elephant in the room here. I mean, I think the, uh, especially now in 2020, that a lot of the Trump people are, it's become sort of a cult. I mean, they'll, they'll do anything he wants to say. They'll believe anything he says. And secondly, I think they just, they're just, uh, it's been a reaction to, to racism. I mean, I think they're, uh, but I think the country is further along in terms of race right now than it was back in 2016. I, I agree with that. But what I'm saying is by making um, injustices and uh, uh, always bringing up uh, during, the, during their democratic convention, whenever they make speeches about uh, all the uh, wounds of uh, racism and slavery and all that, by harping on that so much, you're, you're going to be getting a defensive reaction from white voters. And I, I How do you feel about Jews harping on the Holocaust? Is that harping? Because it's not 400 years old. Well, I, I, there, no, I, I mean, Jew, Jews are certainly entitled to talk about the Holocaust. Then but, blacks should be entitled to talk about what's happened to them for the last 400 years. To the extent that every time somebody makes a speech, you know, the white people are reminded that you know, the country was founded on slavery and there were all these injustices, now reparations and all that. What I'm saying is, no matter what you think the real justices of this or injustice, I'm saying politically, it's not a good strategy for the Democrats because you're going to get a white backlash and resentment. Whites are saying, oh, 
I don't consider myself racist. And every time I turn around, uh, white people are being accused of racism. As a political strategy, I don't think it's effective. And the Democrats don't recognize that. I mean, how do you feel about uh, Black Lives Matter? I mean, do you think it's good or bad, or do you think it's uh, helping Trump? I, I, I think it's, Trump is getting mileage out of that because, uh, as I mentioned, Ken, Black Lives Matter, these demonstrations that are going on now, look at how well organized they are, how well equipped, how, how well financed. Black Lives Matter is uh, funded by $1.67 billion, with a B, $1.67 billion in corporate donations mostly. And you could see how these riot, how the protests, which involve rioting as well, are continuing for months now. And there, there's a reaction to that. So I, I think what I'm saying is, Ken, you know, certainly there were injustices, certainly they continue. But, you know, how systemic uh, racism could be in this country if a black guy was, was elected president? What I'm saying is it's being emphasized too much, unnecessarily. Because whites have been moving beyond that. You know, it's a far cry from, from when John Lewis was marching. And, and, you know, I have total admiration for John Lewis. Nobody kneeled on his neck when he was marching. Nobody kneeled on his neck. And Hit him over the head. So what progress are we making? I, <laughs> what progress? First of all, we have a black president. We have blacks in positions of power around the country. So that's a lot of progress. You never had that before in the 60s during the beginning of the civil rights movement. What I'm saying is a lot of this progress is already happening, but, but by playing the, the victimization all the time, you're, you're getting a backlash of resentment. It's, it's human nature. Larry, I, Larry, this is Jerry. I understand what you're saying, and uh, I, I agree to some extent. And when we look at quote, the looting in Chicago recently, which I'm sure is playing on Fox News all the time. That had nothing to do with Black Lives Matter. That was just pure criminal looting is what it amounted to. That's going to be a backlash. But I also look at the demographics, you know, maybe not this election, but over, the, over in the next one or two decades, uh, whites will be a minority in the United States. So as we appeal more and more to minorities, quote, to the Asians, to the Blacks, uh, to the uh, Hispanics, uh, you know, sooner or later, it's not going to matter so much, in my opinion, how much backlash you get from the small minority of whites. Now, in 2020, that may still matter, but I still think that we have a large amount of minority voting that is coming out because of Black Lives Matter, because of, of Kamala Harris uh, being nominated. And I think that's going to overwhelm the backlash that you're talking about. I'm not sure if it'll overwhelm in 2020, as you said, but certainly the demographics uh, are, are trending towards uh, a black majority, a white minority. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's certainly um, the way the nation is heading. So, George, where are you at? So it's hard to know where to start, Kent. <laughs> so let me start here. Do I remember that someone in this group said some weeks ago that they were a fan of the TV show Law and Order? Uh, I don't, I well, don't if you, either way, there's an episode of Law and Order where the Richard Brooks character uh -huh. used, basically plays the race card to get one of his, to get his client off. And at a later point in the show, he's talking to the white assistant district attorney 
who asked him, why does every, why does he, why did he have to play the race card? And his answer is everything is about race. And I guess that's the way I feel rightly or wrongly. That's the way I feel. Everything is about race. The black jobless rate in June was 17%. The white jobless rate was 12 and a half percent. Black people are, are disproportionately being infected and dying from this pandemic. It seems to me that the interests of black people are at the heart of the success or failure of the Democrats in this upcoming election. And the, I don't think there can be much doubt that the attempts nationwide, including here in the state of Georgia, to suppress votes are specifically designed to suppress black votes. Mm. Well, they're suppressing Hispanic votes and Hispanics also have very bad uh, numbers as far as the diseases and uh, the, the, you know, the virus and also on, uh, on uh, wages. So it's not just black folks getting it. And then you have a segment of white people, especially in the rural areas and also in the, in the cities where they used to have good factory jobs that are not there any longer. So there are various people who have various levels of claims of, of uh, not doing well right now. It would behoove them to figure out how to come together and win an election and have a party that represented their interests rather than go at each other. Yeah, workers of the world unite, but of course, if you throw that phrase, you're, you're immediately labeled a, uh, a socialist, a communist, a Bolshevik, and all that. But yeah, I mean, you know, back in the 30s, you know, that was going on. Yeah, well, I think the reality is, if people don't get together that way, they're not going to have any alternatives. Larry, let me ask you, in Pennsylvania, if I understand it, in order to for Biden to win Pennsylvania, he has to have a very large turnout in Philadelphia, which is primarily a black vote in Philadelphia. So given your, your crystal ball, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to be able to get a very large black vote out of Philadelphia? Well, don't forget, it was the uh, black vote out of Philadelphia and to lesser extent Pittsburgh and some of the other larger uh, areas uh, that um, put, um, th that went strongly for Hillary. But it wasn't enough to counteract the, the boondocks with, uh, with, with uh, Trump the last time. Now, this time, you know, the demographics, what, what the Democrats have going this time, which they didn't so much in 2016, is that more of the minorities of all colors, of all ethnic backgrounds, more of them are now much more attuned to getting out to vote, that that's the way to change things. Don't forget, uh, historically, uh, especially in the beginning of the civil rights movement, it was tough to get blacks out to the polls. And that continued to a large extent uh, up until recent years. But now in the past four years, uh, the leaders are much more organized in getting people to polls. And, and the minority population itself, I think, is much more aware of the importance of turning out. So that may be enough to put uh, Biden over if they turn out the numbers that he needs. But don't forget, Trump's um, supporters are rabid and they'll go to the polls, you know, come hell or high water. So again, that's why I find this a very difficult one to call at this point, what's going to happen. It's, uh, there's so many competing pluses and minuses. 
for, for both these candidates. But I think a big difference uh, this year, four years later, is that the minority vote is much more likely to turn out in stronger numbers than it did the last time. What I'm hearing from people that I talk to here in Georgia, and it's a small sample, and it's a, a, a sample that I've been in contact through my daughter, whom, whom you guys know, is that people, are, black, black voters are saying, we will stand out in the rain, run the risk of COVID for as long as we have to, to vote in this election. Mm -hmm. Here, here. Oh, that could make the difference. That can make the difference. This, this is what I think, you know, and, and at the risk of coming off as, as the token redneck here, <laughs> 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 which is why I think Ken invited me on. Oh, never, Ken, never. Ken and I have discussed this a number of times. And uh, clearly, Trump would like to suppress the vote with the mail-in ballots. However, he's got a point that I think mass mail-in voting is open to fraud on both sides. Absentee ballots are a different story. That's been going on for years. But masses of mail-in ballots, who are they going to? Who's sending them back? Uh, it, I don't think it, it, it's, it's a good way to go. Now, the problem is, here's another thing. You know, looking at, looking at uh, the November election, what happens if both sides challenge the results, depending on the states, wherever they are, uh, or whoever wins or loses is challenging. It's held up for weeks, months, maybe it ends up in the Supreme Court. And then, you know, uh, social um, eruptions continue, including rioting. What's going to happen then? You know, I, I think we could be headed to a, to a very uh, uh, dangerous period here with the election results if, if it's not a clear-cut victory. I would like to see the Democrats fighting for a national voting holiday uh, yeah, and uh, measures like that, fighting hard for that, putting that kind of idea up there. Yeah, there should be. There should and be a national vote. Rather vote. than going just for this, um, this uh, voting by mail, putting all the... Uh, you may be aware that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund has filed suit against the post office yeah. to, to reverse the changes that they've made. Right, right. Uh, I guess I don't see the the wisdom in sending a ballot to everyone who is registered. But I do see the wisdom in sending an application for an absentee ballot yeah. to everyone that right. is That's what registered. I'm That's, right. what I'm That's a better way to go. Getting back though, also what you mentioned, Larry, I got to weigh in on. I, I think it's not good journalism of the CNN and the others not to show the uh, violence that's going on, not just with the, at the demonstrations, yeah. in the cities at all, to, to turn away from it and conceal it, pretend it's not happening. Um, the big mistake. Yeah, well, John, this is what I talk about with Kent all the time, that there is no longer any objective journalism. You know, Fox is on one extreme grinding their own axe. CNN, MSNBC is on the other. And, you know, everything now ha has an agenda rather than presentation of facts. Yeah. You know, that way, when, when Kent's day, when he's at CBS, he talks about a fact checker that they had, uh, a, a, a schoolmarmish type woman who, who made sure that their facts were correct before it went on the air. You know, when, it, when, when what happened was when, when news became uh, a, a moneymaker for the networks and the ratings became supreme, mm -hmm. then you got 
the, 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 the political agendas there because, and Fox is the one, the Fox is the one that, that actually pioneered this where mm-hmm. you decided to go for a niche audience, not for the whole audience, but there was enough conservatives to make them supreme in, in the ratings and that element. And that was enough to make them successful. When the other networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and especially cable, especially the cable networks, saw the success of that formula, they took the same tact only on the liberal end. So, you know, the truth and objectivity is now lost. It's difficult to find out really what the heck is going on accurately. You've, you've got you've to mind the internet and, you know, there's all kinds of agendas on the internet. Uh, you've got to do a lot of research to really get down to what you, you, you conclude. Yeah, you know, that that that's the the failing now of journalism. There, there's very little objective journalism anymore. So, pe- what people do now is they tune into the station that makes them feel comfortable and reinforces their pre-existing beliefs and prejudices. So, you know, when you talk to somebody, whether if it's conservative or liberal, you know that they, they all already have made up their mind because they're being fed filtered information. What they've done mm-hmm. is blended editorials with supposed straight yeah. news report. Now, you can't tell when it's an editorial and, and when it's a straight news report. Even the New York Times is doing that now. What used to be said opinion at the New York Times, I worked at the New York Times, if it was an opinion article, you put a little square, it said opinion. Right. You never put, now, they don't have opinion, and you read the article and you can tell it is an opinion. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, but John, I mean, I think if you were to rebut, if a news organization had to rebut Every lie that... Oh, you don't have to do it. Be selective. No, but I mean, he, t- he tells so many. He tells so many. And I think the thing about him, the thing about him is that he has no shame and no, doesn't care about if he lies or not. And that is a real challenge to any kind of news organization. In the sense Rather that... Than he lied 700 times in the last week and have a whole big thing. Pick out, have some selectivity uh, of... Which things are more important to people? Which things are more effective in exposing him to even his own supporters? And get into that in a serious way. You don't have to try to cover, you know, 700 falsehoods. Expose the big lie. I think you're right, John. It doesn't matter if he lies about the size of the inaugural crowd. Yeah. It doesn't matter if he lies about hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, exactly. Larry, let me ask you, back to the debates for just a second. Trump lies all the time. Is it beneficial for Biden even to debate him? Uh (laughs) Uh Are you part of the group that's working on how to get Biden out of the debate? (laughs) Because I think that's one of the options they're considering, is to declare that since Trump lies so much and such is so vile, they're not going to give him the platform to spread more hate and lies and therefore no debates. <laughs> I think that's one of the options that they're considering. That's a good argument. I think that's a good argument. I, I don't. I, you know, the, I think the guy he, who could uh, be the next president of the United States not, not subjecting himself to a debate? No, but I think he uh, proved that he doesn't have dementia and he, that he can put two sentences together at the uh, convention. Wasn't that off a teleprompter? <laughs> sure, it was off a teleprompter. But have you, have you seen Trump on a teleprompter? I mean, come Larry, on. What about, the, what about the possibility that, that Trump won't want to, want to debate? I hadn't thought of that. Well, what, what, what would be the motivation there? That he's got a lot of bad things to answer for that a savvy, 
preparation group would have Biden prepared to challenge him on. But Biden can't ex execute anything that's very savvy. Right, right. He's inca mentally incapable, I believe, of, of, uh, of uh, standing there and, and, you know, give and take on the topic. I, I just don't think he's got his marbles there. Well, he can't, I, I see no way that Trump can defend his and the administration's performance on the pandemic. Exactly. I see no defense for that whatsoever. Right. And I think I agree with you on that. And I think that makes it a almost a one issue election. I mean, people are just outraged about that. And I think uh, that, that's going to be the main thing that's going to do Trump in. So, so let me ask, Larry, you know, let, me well, so that, let me ask, if, if that's the case, why would Trump want to go before the American public and face that accusation? Because he's got a good spiel and he knows how to sell something, whether it's accurate or not. You know, one, another thing that got Trump elected was he wasn't talking highfalutin. He wasn't talking in the abstract. He was talking down to earth, sometimes even vulgar, but it was the way ordinary people talk. He knows how to do that from working in TV. You know, Kent, when we were doing news, even though we didn't get down to that level, short sentences, no big words, something that could be absorbed quickly, uh, Trump knows how to, how to deliver that. But so, I, mean, I think Biden can do that too, don't you think? I don't, I mean, think, Biden, I don't think so, not from what I've said. At one time, uh, you know, but I don't know if he can do it now. I'm really, I really kind of wonder. Also, as far as the pandemic goes, there are many people out around the country, like in our state here, um, many people feel that, that the Democrats are trying to make the pandemic worse if they can in certain areas of the state um, just as a political ploy. There's a yeah. lot of sentiment of that. They're making it worse by what is perceived as an exaggeration. Again, whether that's a reality is something separate from the perception. That's how people vote on perceptions. Very few people vote on the real facts because they're hard to discern these days. Now, don't forget, I've had this discussion with Kent a number of times. In the beginning, Fauci was saying it was no big deal, it wouldn't be serious in the US. Yeah. And, and, and Biden was, was uh, irate that Trump was restricting flights from China, that he's being xenophobic and all that. Yeah. So, you know, Trump, it wasn't just Trump not taking it seriously. Some of our so-called experts were saying, were, were giving him that advice. And then as it evolved, maybe he should have taken more action. But again, uh, you know, his argument, which, which I think resonates with a lot of people is, how long can you keep the country so shut down that jobs are gone, businesses are gone, uh, no, nobody can move freely. What are the consequences of that long term, both economically, mentally, physically, et cetera, et cetera? And people say, see a point to that. And don't forget, you know, Biden. Now, I thought, I thought the, um, the presentation of him during the Democratic uh, Convention was very good in terms of humanizing him, making him appear very empathetic, those stories of the tragedy in his own life and all that. But as, as I mentioned to Kent, will that stick with people when uh, Trump starts attacking them on the issues, that he's a nice guy, you know, that he's, he's not a bully like Trump? But, you know, what will that really mean to people, whether they, they turn out to vote? And also, look at the baggage that, that, Trump, that uh, Biden has had over the years. For instance, Hunter Biden, who was presented surprisingly at, at the... Um, at the convention, there's no way you can convince me that he was he didn't get that job in oh. Ukraine because of his father's influence, who his father was. 
and also to an extent in China. So Biden is not as pure as a driven snow. As I've told Ken time and time again, both sides are corrupt. They take care of themselves. People are aware of that. And a lot of people I know are Trump supporters aren't in love with Trump, but they say enough of those guys. They've had their chance. So maybe there will be some changes with Trump. If you're, if you're picking on Hunter, let's turn, let's look in the mirror and let's look at Ivanka. Let's look at Kushner. Uh, you know, they only got their jobs because of what? Daddy. Yeah, I know. But the difference is, the difference is that Trump is making no apologies for that. But Biden and the Democrats have been portraying <laughs> themselves as pure as a driven snow. And we see that they're just as corrupt. Larry, are you married? Yes, I am. Are you going to buy your wife clothes that Ivanka has had made in China? No. <laughs> I try to avoid anything made in China, which is very difficult to do because yeah. of the outsourcing, which sure. the Democrats helped because the Democrats were being funded by the big corporations for their, for, for their, their campaigns. So, yeah, let the jobs go to China as long as the corporate donations keep going to us. Now, Clinton is the one who pioneered that. He, he said to the party, he says, we've got to get economic parity with the Republicans. So we've got to start going with the corporations. So people in, in the party said, well, we're going to lose the working class. And he said, where else are they going to go? They're going to stick with us. And that's what happened until they got fed up with it and elected Trump. Trump is a monster of their own creation. So what I'm saying is both sides are so corrupt and people now are fed up with both sides and they're just hoping that Trump would bring about some change. Whether, you know, what that's leading to is a separate issue. But what I'm saying is if, if the Democrats want to blame anybody for the rise of Trump, they should blame themselves. So Larry, yeah. who, are you, who are you going to vote for, Larry? <laughs> I, w I want to vote for uh, Bernie Sanders, actually, or Tulsi Gabbard yeah. as a write-in. But not Kanye West. Oh, God. <laughs> I might vote for him. He'd be a change agent. What the heck? Oh, God. You are not a liberal Democrat, no matter what you say. <laughs> a friend of mine sent me an email that said, had four points to it. When 27 people were vying for the presidency, they, for the Democratic nomination, they said, um, one, the person who ends up with the nomination may not be your first choice. Two, the person who ends up with the nomination may not be totally ideologically congruent with you. Three, the person who ends up with the nomination may have made mistakes in their past. Four, get over that shit. <laughs> I mean, you always have to make compromises with the candidate you pick. No, no candidate is pure. Right. No, no candidate is perfect. Yeah, that's true. A conversation with journalist Larry Sperano. And yes, no candidate is perfect, but there is one candidate who is very, very imperfect. I'm Kent Garrett. Thank you for joining us. And you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.